Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh, two people who, from what they've said, don't, also don't like the cold. How's it going, guys? It's going great. I'm in from the cold, David. In from the cold. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? I think you guys have told me that, right? You both hate the cold. Is that is that? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, yes. And this is one of the coldest winters we've ever had in Colorado since I've lived here. So I am not in from the cold. (laughs) You're in, but also it's just cold inside. Yes. Yes. And I'm loving all the poetry you're reading on um, the daily poem, David, because it's all like these contemplative bleak winter poems. And I'm like, this is me. (laughs) (laughs) Tim, so you're a Georgia boy, but you've been living in Pacific North. I feel like you've told me before you don't like the cold. But then on the I, other hand, maybe you do like the cold because you sweat less. I <laughs> honestly, for me, it's Georgia summers that I abhor. I okay. can't deal with Georgia summers anymore. I remember walking, you know, when I, back when I wore a business suit, back when I had some game and I would walk across <laughs> the parking lot to my car, you know, on an August afternoon and like on a hundred foot walk, I would start sweating through a business shirt on the way to a business meeting. And I was like, I got to change. I got to go to the Pacific Northwest. So you loaded everything up and the rest and is history. Yeah. Cued <laughs> Beverly Hills. What was the, like, the um, song? The Beverly Hillbillies? Oh, old, yeah, Hillbillies. What's wrong with me? I couldn't think of Beverly Hills. I still am getting it wrong. <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> um, well, uh, we are here to discuss, to start a new book, actually. We're here to discuss Jean Le Carre's um, the Spy Who Came In From The Cold. It was his third novel. It was written in 1963. It is... This is one of those... I listen to this podcast where they'll talk about movies or... Um, yeah, they'll talk about movies. It's called The Rewatchables. Um, and what they'll do is they'll have this thing that they call one for us, two for you. Or one for me, two for you. So they'll do the ones that they know the audience is going to like. And then every now and then they'll do one that's purely for them because they just love talking about it. This might be a little bit of one of those one for me situations because I do love this book. And if you're a longtime listener of the show, yeah, you know that I've got a, a variety of copies of this of this particular book. Uh, before we dive right into the conversation though, and I get some... Uh, thoughts from Heidi and Tim on this book, I need to tell you about our friends over at New College Franklin. They are presenting this episode. You know about them if you've been a long-time Close Reads listener. Through the college years, students go through an intense period of growth, intellectual growth, spiritual growth, social growth, emotional growth. So as you think about college options for yourself or for your students, consider not only what you want to do, but who you want to be. New College Franklin is dedicated to spiritually forming students by discipling them through the seven liberal arts for wisdom, virtue, and service. As a four-year classical Christian liberal arts college nestled in downtown Franklin, Tennessee, New College focuses on the great ideas, the trivium, and the quadrivium to contemplate the beautiful, good, and true, and to respond with wonder and gratitude. You can find out more at newcollegefranklin.org. Again, newcollegefranklin.org. I believe... um, Angelina Stanford, our compatriot, compadre, whatever, here on the show, she um, is going to be speaking at New College, I want to say next month. I wish I'd actually looked up the specifics on that before I, before I started talking about it. But check out New College or, or Angelina's uh, author page on Facebook and they'll have information there for you. So if you're interested in seeing her speak. I know you guys have each been there. I've been there. It's a great place. It is. 
Um, okay. Yeah, go. Say what you're going to say. I was just going to ask, David, when you first read this book. Spy? Um, I just call it Spy, by the way. Um, uh-huh. Pro move, David. Great question. It's just because it's a long title. So I have to write... Every time you have to write <laughs> it, you do, it's annoying writing long titles. So just go with the shorthand. Um, when did I... Man, I don't know. The, I don't know. Sometime in the last... 27 years <laughs> sometimes since I was five years old. Um, Do you remember I, the circumstances under which you decided, Oh, I'm going to try this book. Did someone recommend it to you? Probably under the covers uh, with a flashlight. I don't know. Uh, I, I honestly don't know. I, I can't yeah. remember. That's, that's actually very unusual for me because I usually can place books that I love. I can place the first time I read them. I can tell you exactly when I first read Jaber Crow, for example. Or crossing to safety, mm-hmm. or, or um, other books, but um, I don't remember. I don't know why. That's a, this is disturbing now. I'm I'm disturbed. I'm gonna have well, to work through sense, this now. Though. It's probably part of the furniture of your mind so much that you've read yeah. it so many times, and it just you, know, you can't always remember. You know, the first time things like that that have been so formative, or so you know, so much a part of your soul or your mind come to you know first take seed. Yeah, and now that you're talking about it like that, I'm not exactly sure what to make of the fact that um, that spy fiction, just in general, and crime fiction in general, is a huge part of my soul, as you put it. So that's a little little weird, but um, I'm I'm kind of okay with it now that now that I'm thinking about it. I think Heidi and I are going to sort of function as the detectives. We're going to be the interviewers. Exactly. <laughs> We're going to be the detectives prying the secrets out, buried in your heart. Yeah. It should right. be a well, relatively you, painless procedure. <laughs> this is the second time you've each read it, right? You, you've read it before. Is that correct? Yeah, but because of you. Okay. Because I knew how much you loved it. And so I, that's why I read it. Okay. Tim, you've read it, right? Or is this the first time? I had read it before, but honestly, I, I enjoyed it the first time. Nothing like this time. This time. Yeah, that's true it. So you're loving it. Oh man. I reread it. I finished it a couple days ago and okay. I thought, why did I not, why did my hair just not catch fire the first time I read this <laughs> book? And I have theories about why, and maybe we can talk about those, but I'm really glad we're reading it because I think oh, it's remarkable. It's a good. really fine book. Have you read, have either of you, well, I'll just put it this way. How much of Le Carre's canon have either of you read besides this book? Okay, so I read this book and then I read The Looking Glass War and then I read Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Okay. And I read Tinker Tailor twice. <laughs> I want to say because I'm a genius, but really it's because I'm a dummy. And I, I was like the... Really, like the first time I read Tinker Taylor, it's like, I really think I might know what just happened. And then I went back and reread it. So, yeah. Yeah. That's probably his most. And did popular. you enjoy that one? I How liked did you Tinker enjoy Taylor. that one the second time through? I liked it. I like Spy better than Tinker Taylor, but I, I, I understand the genius of. Tinker Taylor. It really is a remarkable book. Like these are literary books, mm-hmm. not yeah. just genre fiction, which I don't mean to say just to oh, minimize it, but not a lot of genre this. fiction. Yeah, not a lot this. of genre fiction is literary. And so, and this is. And so that surprised me and delighted me. So, okay. Well, I want to yeah. get to genre fiction shortly because I know Tim and I okay. are both to varying degrees, at least. And I, I actually don't know this for sure about you, Heidi, but I know Tim and I are into 
genre fiction. I know Tim like loves westerns and things like that. Well, at least certain westerns. Um, but so, okay, Tim, how much have you read? Of, what else have you read of Le Carre besides nothing this? else? Okay. Nothing else. I've seen the movie Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and the, the really long enjoyed. miniseries with, from the BBC in the '80s, or the one that came out a couple years ago with Gary Oldman. The one that came out a couple years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With John Hurt as Control. Yeah. So that movie, that's a book. I mean, the BBC did like a 10-part series. It's considered one of the best miniseries ever made. It's got Alec Guinness as, as uh, Smiley. Um, huh. it, they made a two-hour movie out of it, which is pretty good. I, I would love to see another series. And in fact, um, right now, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is in development for a miniseries. Um, it would be better as a miniseries, yeah, I think. With, um, really? But, so Spy is currently in development as a series with BBC and AMC working together on it. And they, um, so John LeCarré's real name is David Cornwell. Crom- mm-hmm. Cromwell, sorry. Um, and his sons currently are the executors of his, he's in his 80s now, and his sons are kind of running the show. So they've been developing a lot of different shows and movies. They just did, um, just in 2018, AMC and BBC released um, the um, Little Drummer Girl. <laughs> Drew a blank there for a second. And Little Drummer Girl, and then they did um, The Night Manager, which had um, that oh, very handsome guy, yeah. and then the guy from House that also played Bertie Wooster. Um, uh-huh. You know who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. I'm drawing a blank there as well. And um, his so his sons are the ones that are working with all the... the uh, the, the people who are developing the movies and have he, they have for several years. So the movies tend to be pretty true. Um, not, not completely true, but pretty true to at least the, the vision of the stories, maybe not every detail, uh, but they, but they, you know, they seem to really care about, and it makes sense that their kids would, they seem to really care about um, the stories in these books and the, the, the legend that surrounds them. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, generally speaking, is the one that is most popular. I think it's sold more copies. It's considered his most popular book. But his best book is either um, widely considered it's it's either this book Spy um, Spy who came in from the cold or Little Jumbo Girl or a book called the A Perfect Spy. So one of those three mm-hmm. is generally his most considered his sort of masterpieces. But the Smiley novels and Smiley appears in this book briefly. But the there's a there's a trilogy of books that are specifically about Smiley and those are the most popular ones. Those have sold the most copies. So there's a number of different angles you can go if you're interested in Lacare. You can just focus on the ones that are kind of considered his uh, masterpieces. They're standalones, but a lot of the same characters run through them. Like there's a character that was mentioned in the first few chapters of Spy Who Came From The Cold. His name's Peter Gillum. And he, he was in the most recent, the 2017 novel that like Ari released. He's the main character in that. So there's a lot of different characters that run through through the sort of like Ari canon. And by the way, I said it, it is David Cornwell. I think I said Cromwell, but it's David Cornwell was his real name. And he changed it to John Le Carre because he was actually... A working intelligence officer, and he couldn't have his name out there. Basically, so mm-hmm. um, a lot of these stories stem from his life. But let's let's dive into this a little bit. Um, genre fiction. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, Jim, Get to it, David. I have I have takes on genre fiction, but how much genre fiction do you read, Heidi? I just read murder mysteries. I am obsessed with murder mysteries. So that's, and I like these spy novels too. I just do. So I grew up in a reading home 
we, uh, my parents just have books everywhere. And, um, we had a giant case of the, the entire canon of Agatha Christie. Mm. And so starting from the time I was probably nine, I just read them all the time and we didn't, we weren't really allowed to watch TV as a kid. So, um, I just read Agatha Christie novels, like not because I was trying to be literary, just because I was bored. <laughs> so, um, and I thought they were interesting. So they're my, um, I want to, I mean, I guess probably the closest thing is guilty pleasure, but I don't feel guilty about it. I just love them and I read them and I reread them. And, um, I think I really, as you guys know, I really like character development. I love, um, getting behind the eyes of characters. And so I like, most people think of mysteries as being plot driven, but I do think of them as being psychological studies, especially with something like Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers or some of the really good authors. I am less of a fan of Sherlock Holmes because those are entirely plot driven, like decoding. So I like them fine, but I don't love them. Yeah. 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 Puzzles is a good way of putting it. So I'll read genre fiction, but, but mystery murder mysteries are the only ones that really grab my attention. Like, you know, I read as a kid, I read historical fiction and romance novels as a teenage girl and you know, all the things I'm just getting into spy fiction because of you, David, I'm just curious about it. Something I've never read. So I'm reading it and I like it. Um, so yeah, I, Hmm. I, I enjoy it. Tim, what about you? We've talked on the show a lot about how you like at least certain Westerns, you know, you like Cormac McCarthy stuff and, Dove, but I, I don't know that I'm a genre fiction fan. I, I like, and I love Lonesome Dove. You just said that. Um, but like for me, Lonesome Dove, it's certainly a Western, but it maybe is like the spy who came in from the cold and that it ends up trans, transcending genre fiction. I, mm. I, I wonder if we should say a little bit more about what we mean about genre. I suspect everybody that's listening probably knows I have a little category in my mind, which is if you can, if it's on the bestseller rack at an airport bookstore, it's genre fiction. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Isn't okay, it kind of so true? What, yeah. So, what are some of the categories then? Romance. Uh huh. Science fiction, western, historical yeah. fiction, Detective, horror, yeah, fantasy, yeah. crime. I can't think of anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I can't either. I, now I, I'm going to wonder if there's anything else. I've got to think about that for a while. Did you say historical yeah, fiction? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Those I liked too. I like those. I don't really read much anymore, but I used to read. Yeah, I read a lot of that when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Civil War and, oh man, I was obsessed with like the Elizabethan age, you know, like the wives of the, all of Henry VIII and, you know, like I loved all that stuff. Yeah. So I guess yeah. I do really like it. Yeah. So, okay. So I spoke too soon when I said that you were a fan of genre fiction, Tim, I apologize for insulting you. So you know, I've been so deeply <laughs> cruelly. David. No, I mean, I've tried, I think John Grisham counts, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be like legal. Or crime, probably. Yeah, yeah, or crime. Thriller, yeah. I have read a couple of John Grisham books, and honestly, I can see why people enjoy them, absolutely. And I just get so bored. I don't, I can't hmm. explain why I get so bored. Hmm. So, 
um, when we talk about the idea of transcending genre, like we say, well, this this spy who came from the cold or lonesome dove or whatever seems to transcend their genre. So, um, so like spy who came in from the cold transcends the crime slash spy fiction genre or lonesome dove the west. Well, I mean, what do we mean that it's transcending that? Yeah. Hmm. Tim, I think I think that was the phrase that you used. Yeah, it is. Dave, that's a really hard question. That's a really hard question. And we'll dive into I, this. I mean, we'll dive into right. spy more specifically. I'll give it minute. a shot. I think I think some of what we might mean, and I this is by no means exhaustive because there's much more to it, but I think some of it is that it gets beyond, say, the tropes um or the you know the expectations like of of a certain kind of fiction you know like when you read say a murder mystery you expect to find certain tropes and certain stock characters and the archetypes uh, the pattern yes exactly and the pattern of the story you know there's going to be you know some kind of red herring you know all that stuff and and the books that transcend the genre, they, they may have and probably will have those tropes and stock characters and archetypes and all those things in them, but somehow get beyond them into kind of the contemplating the mystery of what it means to be human, right? Like when we read Spy, you're like, I, this is not just these tropes and these archetypes. Yeah. This is a contemplation of the human condition. Um, and, and, and that's what great literature does. That's what great books and stories do. Uh, plus the craft of the writing somehow goes beyond those tropes and archetypes and all those things into, um, a, you know, a masterful work of art in terms of the craftsmanship of it as well. So I think kind of a combination of those things makes it transcend the genre. Mm. Tim, were you going to add something? No, I think that was neatly done by Heidi. Okay. So, so then I mean, when you read genre fiction, should we be, I mean, what's the, is, would you guys have a, a recommended kind of way of approaching it? I mean, given that there are these, these archetypes, these tropes, these patterns, things, things like that, should we be reading uh, genre fiction specifically with you know seeking those things out should we be trying to identify you know, is this book going beyond those things i mean how do you deal with those things from a sort of uh, literary critical perspective as as a reader who's trying to think deeply about the work as opposed to just sort of experience it right well i think i think that's a really good question and that genre fiction for the most part is i i say just enjoy it as entertainment and um, and, and then one, when it does transcend its genre, I, I think it's one of those things that you can't put your finger on it. You just know it. Like, honestly, you kind of just feel it. Like you read this book and you just feel like there's something different about it than, than some other spy story that yeah. just kind of captures your imagination for a while. And then you move on and read another one and they're both kind of the same. Right. And that's fine to do that. Like they're not every reading experience has to be a, um, you know, some kind of profound soul stirring experience, which goes to what you said earlier. And you're kind of like, maybe this isn't part of the furniture of my soul, Heidi, maybe it's just a book I like, right? Like that's, that's 
fine. Like that's a perfectly legitimate way to read reading that? for entertainment. <laughs> well, no, but you kind of were like, I've never thought of it that way, which is fair, right? The idea of like, you just, not every reading experience has to be transformative. And, and um, so sometimes you just read historical fiction because you like it and it puts you to sleep at night and you are interested in it. Um, but something yeah, like, like occasionally Spy, reading for pleasure is not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> yes. And even something like Agatha Christie, some of her books are just remarkable and some of them are just another run of the bill. She cranked it out to earn her paycheck and to please her public. And it's really clear the differences between those two levels. And, um, and I think that's perfectly legitimate. Hmm. So I don't think it has to be um, an, an, an experience of analysis or a search for transcendent every single time you're reading just kind of a type of book you like. Hmm. I remember when we were talking about The Power and the Glory, we talked about how Graham Greene kind of put his own books into two categories. Yeah. And the, the hmm. other category was, I think, David, you called them, he said they were called entertainments. Yeah, yeah. Graham Greene being one of the great spy, spy novelists um, Ever, by the way, mm-hmm. he and he loves this book. He loves. He was a champion. Yeah, he was one of the champions of the genre and of many of the writers in it that, that we remember now. Huh. I've got a blurb on the back of my spy book from Graham Greene. Um, does it say this is the best spy novel I've, the best spy story I have ever read? Yep. Yeah, and he was a big. So Lecaré is kind of the. Uh, he's a turning point in the genre. And, and uh, I think that that was one of the things that Graham Greene was recognizing and something that you guys are pointing out that in some ways it seems to transcend the genre. I think that he's, you know, he's, he, he, it's a turning point also though, because the world is changing and he's recognizing that and he's, he's able to capture the changing world within that genre. Um, whereas previously it had captured a different world, you know? So I don't know that I would say, for example, that John Le Carre is, that much of a better writer than someone like um, Eric Ambler, say, who's kind of the godfather of spy fiction. Um, and, like, I don't know if he was a more skilled writer or storyteller, but he's he's looking at a different... He Like, I began to recognize that this is a new world that they were living in. And so he was able to capture the complications of that world and the questions that world was asking within the genre. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what you're speaking to, Heidi, a little bit. Hmm. That, David, yeah, do you... Clear. Ambler is the name of the other author yeah, that you yeah, yeah. referenced. Eric Ambler, A M B L E R. Have you read any of his stuff? Yeah, I've read. Um, David's like, yes. What have I not read? <laughs> he wrote like ten. Well, actually, he wrote, I think, twelve or fifteen novels and some screenplays and things like that. I think I own eight or nine of the novels. Um, I think I've read six, six of his novels. Um, in fact, one of my goals in life is to adapt one of his novels into a screenplay. So I've been slowly oh, really? working on that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of his movie, a lot of his books were made into movies in like the forties. So there's some good old black and white versions of his work, but he was, uh, his, he was the, f- a lot of, a lot of early spy fiction was very like, um, very much about some sort of high figure, kind of the spy version of a Poirot or someone like that. Like, like there's sort of a, um, he had a, he was a very professional spy, but Ambler took it to down to where it was regular people, you know, like a businessman, for example, who gets caught up in, in international espionage. And like, how does that, what does that do to the regular person? 
And so a lot of his books were about that. Um, and that was a big transition point. And I think, and he was a big influence on a lot of the mid century um, writers like John Le Carre, who's still going strong. I mean, it's pretty incredible how, how it many, is, in, that is incredible how many books he's written that are of really, really high quality. Um, it, you know, for a long time, they didn't even know who he was. Like, no one knew who John Lecker actually was. It was a while before it became out that it, what his real name was or his picture came out. Um, so he, I, I always wondered how much of his uh, obscurity impacted how good his books were, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if the fact that nobody knew who he actually was meant that he was able to really focus on the craftsmanship more than, you know kind of making a name for himself. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if that was good for him. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I don't know. I've never read anything about it. That's just purely, it's just a question I have, but you should write an article about that. I have to do a lot of research. um, That's a good question. And that I think makes me, what you just said makes me think of the preface. Is that in all of the books? It's in my penguin classics edition, the 50 years later preface. It's in the newer, I think it's in anything from, um, 50 years after the book yeah, was published. I think any of the version editions in the last 10 years or so. But a lot of it, I've seen people have a lot of cool older editions from the 60s and 70s. And those wouldn't have it because, you know, it's not 50 years later. Uh, well, he's just this mysterious person. There's this mystique, even to his writing as in the prefaces, right? Like I just, I still, as I'm reading it, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if he's telling us the truth here. And he puts a lot of things in there to that point, right? When um, he'll put, yeah, my, that according to my memory, but my memory isn't always reliable, things like that, that this is what I was told. This is how I remember it that make you question, like, are we talking, is this the real Jean Lecrae or is he cultivating an image or is he's just, he's just, to me, he's just as much a cipher as any of his characters Mm. in everything he puts out in the public. Mm. Huh. Huh. Do you, um, who would you, do you have like, where, who would you compare him to? I guess is the question. I don't think I know enough about the, or do you mean as a character in his novel? No. Like who, who do you compare him as a writer to? Like, can you think of anybody? No, I can't. That, what a good question that is. Never. I'll, I'll, I'll apply my brain to it in the next minute. But like I said, I haven't, I haven't read much spy fiction, so I'd have to look outside the genre. Um, I don't know, Tim, do you have anybody off the top of your head? I'm no, sure David does. I don't. I was going to kick it to David immediately. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have it. That's not a leading question. Yeah. <laughs> hey, but I think that's before worth- I reveal the answer, who do you guys think he <laughs> yes. compares to? Do you, well, I think that is something worth thinking about though, as we read, because I think a lot of times, um, you know, genre fiction gets sort of thrown under the proverbial bus or not looked yeah, on as as, a, as as worthy of our attention, particularly maybe on a show like this where we, you know, pre- pretend to be faux literary snobs or maybe we are literary snobs who <laughs> pretend not to be. I don't know which one it is. But uh, <laughs> that's like the preface of the whole bo- of the book. What you just said: Am I a spy who's a man? Am I a man who's a spy? Nobody knows. Like so. exactly, exactly. You're you're getting it. So yes. um, I think that's something to to keep our keep an eye on as we read. Um, because I think are we going to say he is more John Grisham, or are we saying he's more uh, Graham Greene, for example? You know, I'm just. Right. Or is he more kind of? Uh, I don't want to say maybe. Neither of those things may, may be true. I just th- we had, those are two names that just popped into mind, like Graham Greene being sort of a very 
sort of semi-highbrow literary figure and yeah. John Grisham being more of like a pop, like a clearly of working in a genre of, pop, of popular fiction, you know, and sort of actively pursuing sales. <laughs> uh, so I thinking about where he kind of falls in that, I think is, will be an interesting exercise as we, as we read through, um, right. to the, to talk about it over the next, what, four weeks. Let's, let's get into the book a little bit, um, more specifically. My first question is, do you find this to be a page turner? In these, like, let's yes. say for the first 50 pages. Because some people, you know, some people say it's kind of slow. Some people are saying, you know, they, they started it years ago and didn't get into it. Um, Timmy, you even said when the first time you read it that you, yeah. weren't, you didn't set your hair on fire, so to speak. So yeah. I'm going to go to you first, actually. Why do you think it didn't set your hair on fire? And did you, did you feel, did it feel like a slog? so to speak, you know, this um, time it did not feel like a slog, but, but it did the first, it that first time, time. I think it did. Why I do you think, think that it is? felt like a slog? I think it's because you, for me, I didn't know what was true. I mean, I felt like the whole book. <laughs> Welcome to John. Was, Le Carre. Really? Are all of his books like that? Well, I mean, they're all, it's, it's spy fiction, man. You never yeah. really know what's true. <laughs> But you even, have seen the most recent Mission Impossible movie, right? Worlds yes. and worlds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's kind of hard. It's it's part of what made the book so compelling the second time. But I think the first time I kept like my feet kept reaching for you know something solid underneath me, but no, I was just going to have to keep floating for a long time. Is that a flaw? I don't think it's a flaw. I think it's very, very, very intentional. I almost think. Well, okay. Do you think that it, I guess I, I didn't mean it was unintentional. Like, did he accidentally keep you guessing, but is it a flaw to, to write a book where you're no one, where the reader can't ever find their footing? I mean, or, you know, is it sort of being too clever for your own good? Like uh, someone who really wants to be Ezra Pound. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think so. I said it was intentional, obviously, because he's a craftsman and he knows what he's doing. But it's also intentional, I think, because I think that John Le Carre would say it's it's an essential aspect of this story that you want to keep reading so that you discover who's lying, who's telling the truth. And hopefully those things are kind of clear at the end. Mm. I think in a strange way, it's the thing that made me feel like I was out to sea, but it's also the same thing that kept me reading. It just made me slow way down on the first read because I was trying to discover, wait, what are all the angles that everybody's playing here? It's really interesting that you say that, you know, it forces you to slow down because that's sort of... I don't know. It seems like it'd be antithetical to common perceptions, maybe even common goals of most genre fiction, where it's like turn yeah. the page, turn the page. You know, you got to get to the climax. You got to figure out, you know, the you what's going to happen. You like the point is, you want to get to the end of the book. Seems very sort of counter to the traditional approach. Yes. Yeah. Heidi, what's the pace like for you? Is it a turn page turner? Uh, it is for sure a page turner. The first time I read it. Um, it was a bit of a slog. It's 
it's like I tell my students in my classes that if you're reading old literature, something like Shakespeare, for example, um, it the first few pages are a lot harder than the rest of the play, right? Mm-hmm. Your your mind has yeah. to catch up to the language. Same if you're you pick up Jane Eyre and some people give up in the first chapter. Graham Greene is the ultimate you, example of this to me. Yes, yes. Graham Greene's a great example too. So there's there's a certain type of language, of lingo, of of narrative structure that Voice. a world voice it's it's an entire world like if you think of a, any kind of any given work of great literature as it, a world in and of itself that's created by the author right so our minds have to catch up with that hmm. it's not the author's responsibility to get our attention on the first page if they're writing a great book and so it's, it's the readers i really believe this it's the reader's responsibility to put themselves in um, under that authority and go into it and 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 learn the language and um but genre fiction isn't always like that, which I think that's why when you read something like this that has literary quality, you feel a little bit cheated because you pick up a, a historical fiction or a romance or a spot you think you know what you're going to get and it's supposed to grab your attention from the first page and if it doesn't you're like well that's not good i'm going to pick up this one over here i'm going to pick up this john grisham that'll do it right do it for me so for our listeners who are experiencing that like push through because you get the hang of it within the um, within the first chapter or two, and then it becomes delightful. And then on the second read, just like Tim saying, it is like blowing my mind. I would say everybody should read this book one time and then go back and read it again. Yeah, yeah. I will say I've noticed that a lot of people who were who are listening who are reading along have already finished it. So why not go back and read slower now? Yes, I will say. I just said I will say twice. Like if you have that on twice on your bingo card, then you win. Um, <laughs> or your drinking game, your close reads drinking yeah, game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that should get added to the list probably. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, don't you think? Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a great I, question. I literally have no idea what I was going to say now. So let's just move on. Hey, so you won't say it. So you won't say I, it. I will, I will not say <laughs> But as a side note, yeah. the thing that you were describing, Heidi, how it takes it takes a little while to get into when you're listening to Shakespeare or when you're reading an old classic. It's an amazing thing about the human mind that, mm-hmm. that we can, that it brings us into this alternative world. And it only takes for a Shakespeare play. It takes about 10 minutes. Before, That's right. It's the first scene. Yeah. Yes. The first scene. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait, Oh my gosh, the language is so hard. I mean, I think even for those of us who are very well versed in Shakespeare, when I go see a Shakespeare play, the first five or 10 minutes, I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, got to get the car in gear. And then, yep. and I, what an amazing thing about the human mind that it's so both like powerful and malleable at the same time that it can kind of like absorb all this and create the world and allow us to step into it. That's just stunning. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Right. Well, and I mean, I, I didn't know this until I read um, Tinker Taylor and there's a long preface at the beginning of that one too, that he writes like an introduction from his point of view and which I really like that. And he goes through all of the phrases that he added to the lexicon like very almost like Shakespearean, the amount of things that like Hooray, the the language this of spy fiction that he put, like he was the 
guy who came up with the word mole for no a way. double agent. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um and he he says that he Heidi dropping the trivia. The, so when you guys are trivia night right? and they say who invented that, you now know. John Lake yeah. Correct. Yep. He was, I mean, and that's just part of the lexicon of, of American language now. Yeah. If someone is a double agent, they're a mole. He invented that. There's lots of things like that that he um and he doesn't explain it in his work. He'll just right. say yep. something. He, he is. He. He'll just drop some piece of lingo in there, and really the reader has to catch reader. up. Oh, yes. the intellect of his reader. He does, and so the and it the reader is put into this world, and it's disorienting to the reader. And so, and and to your point, Tim, that you made earlier, that's kind of the whole point. Mm. So the language and the content is disorienting to those of us who want to put our feet down on something solid, right? Somebody explain to me what's going on. Can you imagine how these spy characters are feeling? Like they don't know who to trust ever. So we are entering their world on an emotional way. And it's perfectly normal to say, oh, I don't like that. That's, it's disorienting to me. It's scary. But that is exactly how the characters feel all the time. And that's kind of one of the point. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Tim, I think you were going to say something. I I lost it. Oh, <laughs> I can't. Sometimes like, I can't tell because you know <laughs> I can't see you. So I just right. it sounds like you know it sounds like maybe you're opening your mouth and I want to give you a chance to talk. So if now's your chance to say something, if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> I think now would be the moment that I fill in with some metaphor about a small bird right? leaving a cabin <laughs> through an open window. Such was the thought in my mind forever escaped into the ether i think i think that maybe for this episode john le Carre may have taken over the the uh the mantle of the metaphor king just by he the might fact be. that he invented the word mole yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> well he didn't invent the word obviously you know right that you, the concept of yeah so let's talk a little bit about the voice i mentioned earlier that sometimes voice can be the thing that is challenging to sort of adapt to as you're as you're reading what do you guys make of the voice in this book and the way that it evolves from chapter to chapter did you find that disorienting or do you or not because i saw some people on the facebook page commenting that you know it was hard to tell who was saying what and what the perspective was and and uh like is kind of a master at uh switching in and out of various voices and perspectives so do you find that disorienting or do you find that kind of fun you know so to speak heidi or either one jump in i i think it is disorienting but that to me is not the opposite of fun i like that hmm. trying to figure out where he's at it is um it's having an omniscient narrator um is tricky i think in a novel like this because there's so many secrets in it there's so many things unsaid so going from one confused person to another confused person is like the reader kind of has to catch up on that um, all the time. And so I think there's probably a lot of people saying, Oh wait, did I miss something? What like going back and rereading a paragraph or two. um, And I think that that with this particular novel is going to be part of the craft of the novel. Like it's not accidental. It's not, um, it's not a flaw. It is part of that sense of um, 
that throwing out various threads and all of them really, really do come together at mm-hmm. the end. Mm-hmm. All of them. Tim? I read an article. I try my best to not do literary criticism, but I kind of stumbled upon this guy who was rereading a spy who came in from the cold after 25 years or something like that. And one of the observations that he had was that it's just what you said, Heidi. Having an omniscient narrator in a spy novel is really, really dangerous because if the reader becomes convinced that the author is like very deliberately hiding something from the reader, well, you kind of feel a little bit cheated, even though it is part of the contract that you signed up for. Um, and I, it, it mm-hmm. seems like Lacare does that masterfully. He doesn't just adopt he he doesn't describe the action through individual characters eyes he does stand in proximity to them from time to time in closer proximity to one character than to another character but the narrator always is independent and um not absolutely affiliated with the characters and yet it never feels like he's really deliberately withholding information from us. Right. Well, and in, in a sense, he's not. That's what's so brilliant about the craft of these of, of this novel is that, like you said, Tim, when you go back and read it again, David, you've read it many times. I've only reading it for the second time. But there's so he is he is giving us so much. Mm. Even, I mean, even these, and nobody's going to give any spoilers, listeners, don't, don't worry about that. But that, that he's giving, he, when you know the conclusion, then you go back and reread it. He is giving us so much, but there's no way to get there without the resolution, right? So yeah. it's masterful writing, hmm. to your point. So I was watching an interview uh, with... Christopher McQuarrie, who was the filmmaker behind Mission Impossible Fallout, which funny I mentioned that earlier, and he also mm-hmm. he wrote, he made his career. Um, he wrote the screenplay for um, many, you know, great movies, um, and he was talking about how, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, one of the he wrote the Usual Suspects. By the way, that was the movie that got him got him kind of going. If you're what a great movie, what a great movie. That was the movie that started his career. But so he's a, he's a great screenwriter as in, in addition to a director of like this massive blockbuster movie. So he's very technically and storytelling uh, gifted in both of those areas. And he was talking about how when you try to put a twist in a story, it, what he's not trying to do is, subvert expectations or trick anything trick anybody he says that what you do is you use the audience against themselves so you uh, basically lay everything out like he said he never tries to trick anybody he gives you exactly the truth but what he right. does is he he presents it in a way that uses your anticipation against yourself. Uh, so you're thinking something's going to happen and it's just he may reveal the truth um, at a different time than you think or in a different way than you think or he might um, use what he knows you're expecting against you. I mean, using it against you is kind of right. a harsh word, but you know, the idea is to, and it gets you overthinking things so that, so right. that in the end, things become satisfying, not because he tricked you and then resolved it, but because you have been asking all these questions um, that you have not been able to fully come to an answer for. And then in the end, right. he answers enough of them to make the experience seem satisfying. 
That's brilliant. And that is exactly how usual suspects is, right? It's almost a moment of recognition. It is surprising, the conclusion of usual suspects, but it's also like, oh, it was right there. Yes. like, And it's almost satisfying. You don't feel tricked. And I think that the spy who came in from the cold is exactly that same way. Mm. That exact feeling of almost like recognition of something that you were, were waiting for the whole time. Mm. And then if you go back and read it again, you're like, oh, there, oh, there, oh, there. You know, so there is a mystery to it. There is some unexpected conclusions in there, but it's also just a really satisfying, like rocking good story. Mm. His first two novels, this is his third novel. His first two novels are actually mystery stories. And they're both about Smiley, who has retired. And mm. so he goes back and forth in time throughout his books, but he's smiling, he's retired and he's working in one of them. He's working at a school or he's, I think he's, I can't remember if he's working at it or just lives near it. And somebody dies there. And as a former spy, he has information that he's privy to and he helps solve these crimes. Um, and then, so they weren't like, you know, real true spy novels. And then he got into this, he's, he got into this book he, because he wanted to, I guess, probably work through some of the things that he'd experienced. Mm-hmm. But for him, you know, it doesn't, he's never really, you know, like, he has a lot of information in a lot of his books, but it never feels like he's saying, I'm going to trick you because I'm smarter than you, or you're not, right. you know, I'm, I'm going to just, yeah. try, I'm not going to, tr- he's not trying to be Ezra Pound, right? Right. Um, and I, I think, but, but, he, but the, th- the great thing about him that I think helps him transcend most other spy fiction is the degree to which he trusts the reader both mm-hmm. in the way that he crafts his sentences, you know, and his writing, but also in the way he tells his stories. He, he doesn't, he, he, he trusts that you're going to be able to follow along and figure things out. He doesn't, there's very little exposition in the traditional sense in these books. Like even this novel is not that long because it's what, 215, 220 pages. Whereas it could have been 400 pages if it mm-hmm. had more exposition. And in his other books, some of which are 600 pages, still don't have a lot of exposition. <laughs> wow. In my, in, mm-hmm. I mean, in my opinion. I mean, some people might think it's a bit much, but it's definitely not Moby Dick. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, what well, you, and... Oh, go ahead. You, well, I was going to ask a question that's going to take some different direction. You go ahead, Heidi. Well, I was going to zoom out and say, along with the satisfying nature of the narrative, the good characters. Um, There's, I mean, this is in, this book is, in all of his books that I've read have been a contemplation of society as well. Like there is an, and humanity and the impact of evil and deception on the human soul. um, The, the distortion that takes place when we subordinate humanity to flawed institutions. Like there's so much here. And I think that goes to what we're talking about, about transcending the genre, like along with it just being a great story with great characters and great writing, there's just this pathos, this humanity to this novel that you don't want to miss just chasing the plot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I, in fact, I'd love to spend a couple minutes here looking at some examples of that in these first five, six chapters. I mean, there's a lot of questions that I think are worth looking for as we get closer to the end of the book and discussions we can have. Like, for example, um, I'll throw this one out there for later. I'd love to discuss whether Lemus is a hero, whether we think mm. that Lemus is heroic. Um, I think, but I don't think we can talk about that until the end without 
right. ruining some things for people. So let's hold off That's on that true. one. So as we go, I'd love if you guys have if questions come up for you guys that we can put a pin in them. I'd, I'd love to do that and mark them and hopefully come back to them maybe in the last couple episodes before we get into the Q and A section. Yeah. But I would also love for the, you know maybe a few minutes here on this episode to see if we can dive in on a couple of passages that reveal some of these things or that, that are examples of some of these things that Lakari is doing that you're talking about, Heidi and Tim. Would you guys be up for that? Yeah. Yeah. Please. So if each of you have one or two passages or, or things that he's doing, you know, we can do some close reading. This epi- I knew this episode was going to be a little kind of preview heavy, but if mm-hmm. there's a little bit of um, close reading that we can do, I think that would be, that'd be fun. So um, yeah. Heidi, do you have anything in mind? Okay. So I will say every single like Korean novel that I've read, which again is only three, my favorite parts of all of the whole books are always the conversations with control. Hmm. So I think control is one of the most brilliant characters I've ever come across. I love, I love control. The, I love Not, this take. Yes. This is wonderful. Yes. I'm just going to so, sit back and listen for a while. Yep. So control, he's like a horrible human. He, here's what he makes me think of. So do you remember in... Um, in screw tape letters, in the preface to screw tape letters, when Lewis says that he intentionally made hell a bureaucratic, structured, <laughs> formal institution. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that's that's actually more devoid of of virtue and goodness than like Milton's, you know, emotional Satan hero. Right. So that is what I see in control. This, this utter lack of humanity. His name is control. He's completely depersonalized. Um, and yet he's so insightful about human nature and specifically about the people in front of him that he is exploiting for the sake of the circus, which by the way, is another completely depersonalizing, dehumanizing name, right? So, and again, naming is always important. So these conversations with control, this first conversation with control, when he says, um, do you guys, which, which version do you have? I have the penguin. Yeah. Classic I have the penguin. Version. Yeah. Okay. I don't, there's different covers, but Tim, I think you have the well, I have the one with the broken bicycle on the front. Yeah. Yep. I have the Ballantine uh, version. Okay. So your page numbers are going to be different. Um, what chapter? The fur, whatever. What chapter? What's the com- oh, chapter two? Okay. The circus. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's just, a, it's a long conversation, but I want to hone in on a couple of comments. Um, just the little asides, for example, in the middle of page 14. Um, is it Ryan? I don't know how to say that. Rymic, Remick, whatever. That guy's dead. Um, yes, indeed, Control declared, as if Lemus had made a good point. <laughs> like, that's brilliant. Like, <laughs> it's so good, right? Like, just that little, that little clause, as if Remus had made a good point. Um, it is very unfortunate. It's most, I suppose, the girl blew him up. So he knows everything. Control knows it. He's always in control. He knows everything. And he knows about the psyche of his spies. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then he says these like very, very wise things for his own diabolical purposes. Done. <laughs> um, what he says about coming in from the cold. Where is that paid? Where is that comment? 
Well, you mean the... What, isn't that in this conversation? Do you, do you mean the one where I was talking about how he walked? He was walking around Berlin? Yeah, is that I in this the, conversation? I thought 18 and this is the end of chapter two, if that's the section you mean. There's a section, I'll read it. It's for me on page 16, 17 in chapter two. Um, this is control speaking. We have to live without sympathy, don't we? Yes, that's it. That's impossible, of course. We act it to one another, all this hardness. But we, we aren't like that. for us, Heidi. Yep, I found it. Yep. I mean, one can't be out in the cold all the time. One has to come in from the cold. Do you see how, what I mean? Yes. So go on. What are we, what's somebody saying about that? Here's what I love about Conniving. control. Yes, here's what I love about the character of control. And when I say love, I mean love as the as a character construction not like i like this guy and want to be his friend if i knew who he was i'd run the other way right <laughs> like he is but this character that he has created this character who knows everything who is entirely bureaucratic who is in every way exactly what lewis is talking about in the preface to screw tape letters um he is he has this detached wisdom and or insight is a better word because wisdom implies virtue he is so insightful here he's exactly right in order to be in order to live this kind of life especially to do what he specifically does because he's making these assumptions that these spies who work for him are still trying to do something good in the world right yeah. and and so he is accessing that part of them in every conversation he has. Mm. Um, we have to live without sympathy, don't we? That's impossible. Of course it is impossible. We act like it to one another, all this hardness, but we aren't like this really. I mean, one can't be out in the cold all the time. So, and then the next, the next paragraph, Lemus saw, he saw the long road outside Rotterdam, the long straight road beside the dunes and the stream of refugees moving along it saw the little airplane miles away, the procession stop and look upwards toward it, and the plane coming in, nearly over the dunes, saw the chaos, the meaningless hell, as the bombs hit the road. This is brilliant writing, because he's not even saying, Lacroix isn't even saying exactly what the memory is, but we all know, yeah. right? We all know that Lewis, Lemus is remembering all those refugees dying, uh, being obliterated by the dehumanizing bombs of war. Mm. And then the next thing yep, that that great. entire this next sentence is Lemus. This is his entire character. I can't talk about this control. Lemus said at last, what do you want me to do? Oh wow. Give me something to do. I can't say it. Yeah. Right. So control is so good at this. Like and he's accessing what motivates these characters and then sending them out to do his bidding with no humanity at all, really. Hmm. And, and I love that, the kind of double meaning of, I can't talk like mm -hmm. this control. Um, yes. Just, first of all, it's just a great line, like the little addition of control at the end of mm -hmm. control that he has as a character. Exactly. He has so little agency, um, but also um, there's also this sense that he, he there's the doing that he needs to do, but there's also the sense that I can't keep talking in circles like this. I need you to, right. we need to have an actual honest discussion about what's happened here. And control basically is saying, you know, it, it seems to me that he's saying we can't, if we do that, this is sort of all over. Like if we do that, we can't, we can't, we, we, if we do that, we can't help but have sympathy. So as long That's as right. we talk in circles, as long as we, you know, um, 
don't talk about things in a straightforward way, we can avoid the sympathy. We can avoid the pathos that sort of like just being alive in general demands of us or perhaps even offers. Because then you get that mm-hmm. bit um, about whether things are... Di- the, what, do we do disagreeable things? And it says, yeah. Lemus nodded, avoided talking. And then it said, then Control says, thus we do disagreeable things. But we're defensive. That I think is still fair. We do disagreeable mm-hmm. things that ordinary people here and elsewhere can sleep safely in their beds at night. Is that too romantic? Yeah. Of course, we occasionally do very wicked things. Like the fact that he answers the question, is that too romantic with, of course, we occasionally do very wicked things is a masterful yeah. bit of dialogue because he asks a question he doesn't actually answer. He kind of sets up the question so that the next thing that he says is maybe a little bit less um, harsh. <laughs> right. Um, and then he talks about moralities, you know, and then it says Lemus was lost. He'd heard, he'd heard the man talk a lot of drivel before getting the knife in, but he'd never heard anything like this before. So the way that he's, he's talking in circles sets up so much for us. Um, it, it reveals so much about the plot and the themes, this one conversation, but it also sets, sets us up mentally to be prepared, I think, for the way the rest of the novel is going to go. There's so much cyclical. It's, it's so cyclical. Yeah. It's, it's such a circle that's happening here, which, you know, you know if you... A circle is a series. If you just go the other way, it's just a reversal. Um, and, and I think what he's doing here is setting up a lot of a number of different reversals that are going to happen, not just in the whole book, but even in these first few chapters. And the dialogue itself is a microcosm or a sort of correlative to that. I think. Right. Right. Well, and you never know. I mean, the name control. I mean, that is obviously it's just unbelievably brilliant. Like that's just so good. But. Um, you know, the question comes up then is control, is he, as a character, is he representative of kind of this bureaucratic, dehumanized, institutional, um, uh, pragmatic, utilitarian mindset? Is he the cause of it or is he a victim of it? And I think that that is um, maybe less relevant with control than it is with any of the other characters to Lemus, for example. As, as you point out, he does do some pretty wicked things. They all lie. They all kill. They all, you know, the, that's the nature of being a spy. So how do you maintain your humanity? And when you lose it, whose fault is it? Is it your own fault or is it the fault of this, of control of this institution and what he represents? Mm-hmm. Tim, do you read control as being, um, as conniving as, as, yeah, as Heidi is putting it? Yes. He's super funny though. <laughs> he is super funny. I like him so much. <laughs> I think he's completely sinister, but the the thing that's additionally scary about control is that I felt during the course of the novel that I needed him. Like yes. I needed a plan here. Hmm. Like in I think in the first six chapters, we get a hint of what that plan is going to be, or at least that Lemus is engaged in some sort of plan. And especially when I, when my feet had no footing, I kept feeling like, but control is in control, but control yeah. is in control and it's okay. And so, boy, what a pinch to be in for, for Lemus and, for a re- and, and as a reader that we both recognize that control is an amoral an amoral slash immoral character and also that we have to have him. Yes. 
great way of putting that. Mm. That's perfect. Yes. Because I like him. Every time he's around, I feel yeah. a sense of security. Oh, yeah. thank God, control. Like he knows what's going on. He's got a, some kind of master plan. I'm disoriented, but he's the fixed point, right? Yeah. I, I have to admit, I, I've never personally... I don't think I've ever used or thought about him as being sinister or, I mean, he's certainly conniving, but I, I don't think I, I don't, for, I don't know why exactly now that you're mentioning it. Cause it, in some ways it seems obvious. I've always read him as sort of a pragmatist who, who sees that he has sort of a purpose and that it's his job to make that hat, like make sure that, they do what they're supposed to do. And that he has to, he has to perhaps manipulate people to, to, to fulfill that purpose and make sure that it, like I, I've always kind of read him as he sort of really believes in what they're doing. Hmm. I don't, I'm not entirely sure why that is. I don't know if it's because there's some interpretation or something in a movie that made me feel that way or whatever it is. I, I, have, to, I have to think about why I haven't read him as sinister before. Cause I think you're getting at something pretty useful there. I think that a big part of, What's happening here is is the contrast between control and Lemus, though. Mm-hmm. Lemus, at this point, there's there's a high degree of ambivalence, um, both in his sort of where he sees himself in the world of spycraft um, and and espionage, but also in terms of wh- how he th- looks at himself as a person. Because mm. I think we've gotten to that point in his story where. I think one of the things the first several chapters reveals is that he's not clear who he is. And that's why he's, he so easily can slip in and out of uh, personas and in and out of different roles. Yeah, And that's a big theme in like Harry's work. Like can people who have a firm sense of who they are actually easily play another role? in The Little Drummer Girl, which is a great novel. And and I really highly recommend the, the series that came out last year. It might be my favorite movie or TV show of all of last year. And hmm. it's like six episodes or something. And the, what happens is it's, it's not a cold war story. It takes place in the middle East in the, in the seventies, but I guess, so I guess it takes place during the cold war, but it's not a cold war story. And it's about an actress who gets recruited essentially to be a spy. Hmm. And one of the big things, you know, her, she's good at playing all these roles, but doesn't have necessarily a real sense of who she is. So she's able to slip in and out of these characters, but the lack of a sense of, like a foundational sense of who she is also means mm-hmm. that, that adds a, a level of drama and pathos and danger to the story because she doesn't always know how to, to act. Like what's the compass that's guiding her? I think we're seeing a little bit of the same thing with, with Lemus with maybe without maybe the sort of slightly on the nose aspect of it being an actress. Um, and, and his inability to like say, this is who I am seems to be keeping him back from knowing exactly how to act. So he has to kind of follow instructions. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, of course, there's a lot of irony in the fact that that Lecare calls British intelligence the fictional name he gives them is Circus, and he gives the name of the head of that to be, as you said, Control. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, he's clearly making a sort of pointed statement there when he says that, or when he when he mm-hmm. does that. Do you guys think so? Control in that second chapter spends a lot of time, a decent amount of time talking about, hey, listen, you know we can't have sympathy. He seems to sort of rehearse the um, arguments against the moral impediments that Lemus might 
face. Mm-hmm. Do you guys take that? Did, when you guys read that, did you read it as sort of just this kind of perfunctory rehearsal that control has got to give any spy who's about to engage in a mission like this? Or is there something about Lemus that control is worried about, that he's worried that he's got a buried conscience that might unearth itself during the mission? Yes, that. Yeah. I think it's that. And well, I think that's where the first chapter comes in. Do you think... With the death of his... You know, that's the broken bicycle on the front cover of my book. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, does he, do you, is he worried about him breaking because he thinks he's going to give secrets away and turn like turn? Or is he worried about him breaking for his own sake? Like, it's just the mission won't work and Lemus will fail and die. So, like, do you, know, do you see the difference? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question. I guess I saw it as control because he's always in control. Um, seeing something in Lemus that Lemus doesn't even see in himself because of what he says, right? I can't talk about this control. Like he can't even acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. And so I think control sees something in him as a result of this, the, the, that these deaths of all of these blown agents in Berlin has done something to Lemus has broken something in him. I think control sees it and Lemus doesn't. So it's control trying to keep, keep him from seeing it, trying to keep him active as a spy, like be a good spy and sort of bury that stuff so that he can be a good spy or is he help or is he, or, or the opposite? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, he is, um, trying to speak to it to fortify Lemus against it when it comes up when he's on his mission. Hmm. Like, yeah. I think he's okay. testing it to see how he'll respond. And so, you know, that thing, you know, when I, with, you know, David, like with our kids, when you, we see something they're going through that they can't even name and kind of speak, speak into that so that when it comes up, they'll have something there. Mm-hmm. Right. And we do it for the sake of virtue and control is doing it to control. So, but I, I think he is, you know, the way Lemus responds, like I've heard him talk a lot of drivel, like, but control doesn't say things that are unnecessary to say. Everything that he says is controlled. Everything he says Purposeful, is designed yeah. to produce yeah. a response in his agents and to accomplish the mission. But it is not for the sake of their hearts. It's not like he's like, you know, cares about Lemus. Like he's just, you know, he's asking him to do something incredibly difficult. And he's trying to give him what he needs to get the job done. As you as you said, David, he's pragmatic. So Tim, I got a question for you then. Yeah. Unless you want to say something. Well, let me, I have a theory about why control rehearsed this kind of gave the speech and it's the second full paragraph in chapter two describes lemus before he meets with control i'm going to read it Mm -hmm. lemus was not a reflective man and not a particularly philosophical one he knew he was written off it was a fact of life which he would henceforth have to live with as a man must live with cancer or imprisonment he knew (laughs) there was no kind of preparation which could have bridged the gap between then and now He met failure as one day he would probably meet death with cynical resentment and the courage of, uh, and the courage of solitary, of a solitary, got it. 
He lasted longer than most. Now he was beaten. It is said a dog lives as long as its teeth. Metaphorically, Lemus's teeth had been drawn and it was Munt who had drawn them. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, that's my le- there's an example of my least bit of writing, my least favorite bit of writing in this whole book. Mm-hmm. That I is. Hate, no, I just hate that he put the word metaphorically in there. Oh, yeah, uh, it, it makes me wonder though if control knows that Lemus is defeated and because like internally defeated and mm-hmm. that means that he could become a wild card you know if he just doesn't have anything that he's living for that he's fighting for anymore boy that's a really dangerous agent to have on your hands so i wonder if part of i i wonder if that's in the back of of um controls kind of psychological angling with Lemus if that's the big worry. Hmm. Or maybe it's his asset, right? I mean, maybe that's what control wants out of him. Maybe that's why Lemus is going to be successful at this particular mission. I don't think he's a liability. I think he's an asset for this mission. Because of what you just said. You could look at it either way. I, I remember we had a little puppy growing up and we used to kind of like play this um we had this little like sock that he would you know wrestle with and we would grab one end of the sock and the puppy would pull on the other end of the sock and i remember my dad said something very smart he said you have to let him win sometimes because if he gets it in his head that he can't win well he'll stop playing or he'll get so kind of like enraged that he'll seek another avenue to win Hmm. you know he kind of will quit playing the game and he'll go around the game and he'll come at you and so i've i wondered if yes because lemus is defeated that sets him up to do this kind of this this dangerous mission but also if he doesn't care Hmm. if he doesn't care anymore that makes him dangerous in a different way to the mission. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I don't know. What do you think, David? Um, I, th- I think that, I think that it's telling that control is pointing out Lemus's humanity to him. Yeah. Like, I think that's pretty meaningful and I don't view that as, I'm not as cynical about that as, as you guys are. Um, I think that he's, um, I, so the last, at the end of chapter two, there's a, one of my favorite bits of writing in this book. Um, and, uh, let's see. He says, um, he says, if you're sure you want to, you know, no mental fatigue or anything. Mm Mm-hmm. So Lemus says, if it's a question of killing Munt, I'm game. So there's a very like, it's a very hard statement there. That's very aggressive. It's very in keeping with Lemus. It's very like, there is a mission. I can accomplish it. That's all I'm going to think about this guy. I'm going to get, and it's very revenge sort of oriented as opposed to sort of, you know, a lot of spying is we have, we have to save some group of people or we have to gather this intelligence or whatever it is here. Basically he's saying, I'm going to get revenge for my people. We're going to get rid rid of a bad guy. Um, and then control says, 
do you really feel that control Mm -hmm. and politely? And then having looked at Lemus thoughtfully for a moment, he observed, yes, I really think you do, but you mustn't feel you have to say it, which is a very interesting statement. Mm -hmm. Um, Keeping secrets is of course a big part of being a spy. I mean, in our world, we pass so quickly out of the register of hate or love, like sounds a dog can't hear. All that's left in the end is a kind of nausea. You never want to cause suffering again. Forgive me, but isn't that rather what you felt when Carl Rymick was shot? Not hate for Munt, nor love for Carl, but a sickening jolt like a blow on a numb body. They tell me you walked all night, just walked through the streets of Berlin. Is that right? And then... um. It's so good, David. You're and, right. And so I think that when he's identifying his humanity to him, I think that I think that probably these kind of passages tell me or in, indicate to me that Control has some experience. He knows what he's going through. Uh, that he's not just always right. been behind a desk, but he, you know, he's so specific in the way that that yeah. that Lemus was feeling, and I think that that's telling. But I also I think that he's trying to identify his humanity to him because, in part, there is a pragmatic reason. There is there is the sense that he has to be mentally ready. You know, he has to be prepared to, to, to put in place, you know, to, to enact the plan that they're going to put in place and that that plan is going to be difficult. Um, and it's going to take some persistence, but it's also going to take him being able to access his humanity. You know, like for example, the stuff with Liz, that's a big part of the plan. And he, if he doesn't manage to access, you know, some sense of the sympathy that he's always rejected, then this particular plan is not going to work. And so I think there's there is that pragmatic aspect of Lemus of control helping Lemus access you know something deep within him. But I think he's also saying, "Look, I get it." You know, they're talking about rejecting sympathy, but he's also saying, "I sympathize with you. I get what's right. going on here." And so it is sinister in a sense, but I think that it's also there's a deep. It's deeply meaningful, I think, this, these conversations because I think they set up so much of the rest of the book, the, the, the deeper themes, not just the questions of whether spycraft is, more, is a morally okay thing, which lots of spy novels have asked that question over the years. But it gets much deeper into the, to the nature of this specific character. What is going on in the soul of Lemus? And that to me is way more interesting than is spycraft moral? I mean, yeah, right. spycraft is... Espionage right. is—it's moral and it's also not moral. You know, it depends on how you do it. What's way more interesting to me is the question of what kind of character is on our hands here. And from a writing perspective, what what Lacare is doing is through the character of control, he's helping us at—he's helping us access the inner life of this character. So I, I just love that about it. So I think there is something sinister about it because they're enacting a plan. And I also think there's something sort of meta about it in terms of what Lacare is doing. And then I also think that there's also something. Um, really rich about the way he's dealing with this idea of sympathy because it's forcing us as characters to say, wait, 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 who do we have sympathy with? And that's a big question we're going to get throughout the whole book. I mean, even when you get in chapter four or five, I think it's four when Liz becomes a focus of the story, mm-hmm. who's the person we have sympathy for? We end up having all the sympathy for Liz, right? So I think that mm-hmm. acts, introducing that question is such a nice touch by, by Lekari. I kind of rambled there at the end, but there's a lot going on in this chapter. No, and I think you're exactly right, David. And this that that little speech by control i i can't uh, i want to come back to it when we finish the novel because i think it's so important to what's about to happen but and this is an example of one of those 
things that once you know the whole story, you come back and you reread that whole conversation between control and Lemus very differently than you do blind. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Very differently. And that is, I mean, and that's an example of just the craft of the plot development and all that stuff we were talking about, about usual suspects and that, that idea. But I think, I do think you're right. And I, I do think if you're talking about the, this, a very structured hierarchical system, right? You have a man in control who sends out a man into danger. And, and then that man in turn sends other men out into danger and so on and so on. And you're constantly dealing with the death of the people that you have trained and, uh, and the danger that they're putting themselves in. And Control knows he's about to send this man who's given his life to the circus out into a very dangerous world. And this, I think, is his attempt to fortify him for that. Mm. Hmm. Tim, do you want to add anything to this before we ask for some final thoughts? Yeah, I part of one of the things that I found really interesting in the second read was um I don't I'm not quite sure how to say it. The characters and their relationship to the differing ideologies of um whatever socialism slash communism and uh the west so i I, part i have been reading lemus as not a defeated character in that he doesn't care anymore but i'm i because i think he deeply cares about the loss of his friend and i Mm -hmm. think what's interesting david about that section that you read um when control says, do you feel that way? And then having looked at Lemus thoughtfully for a moment, he observed, yes, I really think you do, but you don't, must not feel that you have to say that. After that, he, um, he says, uh, yes, Lemus says, it's right that I went for a walk. Control, all night? Yes. What happened to Elvira? God knows. And then, just kind of out of the blue again, I'd like to take a swing at Munt. That's right. And I don't think that he has, I don't think that he wants to take a swing at Munt because he wants to protect Great Britain, but because Munt killed his friend. And so what is kind of dangerous to me about Lemus is that he he cares about revenge because he's personally invested in the people in his life, but What's scary about him is I wonder if he is going to lose his ideological affiliation. Hmm. Because he because he does allow himself to live with sympathy. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Hmm. Right. You know, one thing that Lecare talked about is that especially when he got into the smiley books, he wanted to he wanted to tell stories of spies that were anti the James Bond characters because he felt like James Bond was just sort of like spy gangster stories. Yeah. Um, And that they weren't real. There was Hmm. nothing really memorable with the characters or whatever. I think the movies have managed to 
you know, subvert some of that over the years. Uh, at least certain certain versions of them have gotten a little bit deeper into character. But he wanted to create he wanted to create spy characters who felt like real people who were dealing with you know real people things that were um, that were things that you know we could we, you the three of us and all of us who are everybody who's listening could 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 read those stories and and have a sense of sympathy for these characters who we do who whose lives are basically nothing like ours right mm-hmm. because they're because what 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 they're experiencing is fundamentally a uh, human. That are, are human fundamentally human things, even if it's within the context of, you know, international espionage, <laughs> and uh, so I think that you know, for him, that question of sympathy really does it really is crucial to uh, to all of his work, uh, and I think that it, it's kind of the biggest, the number one word I think I would keep in mind as while reading mm-hmm. reading this while reading these books and all of his work, perhaps. Uh, who, well, I like, we could say a lot more about that. We'll save it. But what's that? What's that one word, David? Is it sympathy, sympathy. or sympathy. yeah? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Absolutely. All this gets at gets at some of the reasons why I think genre fiction is is uh, super important and hmm. maybe more important than quote literary fiction, um, hmm. at least for our for the last hundred years for. Con- and for contemporary times, but we can talk about that another time. That's my hot take on, on, uh, genre fiction. <laughs> that's a bold statement to close the show with. <laughs> yeah. That's my final thought. So, uh, you guys have any final thoughts? Hot take. <laughs> I can, I can explain why in the, in the future episode if necessary. I want to hear yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Um, we need, yeah. to, we need yes. to dwell on that, David. <laughs> yes. Um, I, my final thought is just pay attention to the humor that cuts through this book like i think that just this that little detail about how miss crail the librarian like hates lemus and how she makes up a boss mr ironside like it's like so funny to me um and in this book i think that humor is really important Mm. um because as your point for exactly the same reason that sympathy is important um as you're saying david this this question of how do you maintain your humanity when your life is danger and lies and who can you not, and who can you trust and who do you not trust? Like this constant aura of everything is at stake for your own life and actually for your nation in your actions mm-hmm. and idi- this war of ideologies, like it's too much. And so sympathy and humor become the humanizing forces in these novels. And so I think they're important to pay attention to both of those things. Hmm. Tim, final thought. I I don't have anything to add. Hmm. Are you sure? As soon as we end the podcast, we'll be like, Oh, 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 I wish, but would you also like to punch month? I would also like to punch (laughs) month. I like Remus, even though I don't know anything about him. I had an allegiance with him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you to both of you. I think this will be a fun series of conversation. Oh, this is hopefully great. I'm really excited about it. Hopefully the listeners will enjoy it as well. Uh, don't forget about everything else that's going on on the Close Reads Podcast Network. Don't forget that Heidi is is uh, chatting with Brian Phillips and Matt Bianco about Julius Caesar over on The Plays The Thing. We have... Lots of great content scheduled up for Libromania. I can't say too much about that yet, but we've, I'm really excited about some of the things we have coming in the next few weeks. And of course, we have uh, the Daily Poem, and then we'll be 
continuing on with Close Reads. So don't forget that you can head over to closereadspods.com and you can sign up for our newsletter. Before each book goes out, I will be uh, curating uh, great writing, essays, interviews, articles, things like that about the, the next book. So uh, if you want to sign up for that, then um, you can head over to closereadspods.com and don't forget about the Facebook group, the Instagram page. We have a Twitter account. Follow us, all that kind of stuff. Don't forget to leave reviews, start reviews, comment reviews, really help us spread the word, which uh, helps us uh, keep going and making more shows and giving you the content that you seem to like for some reason. Because uh, yeah, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah, what she said. So um, yeah, thanks for, for participating in the conversations with us and uh, being a part of the community. And thanks to Heidi and Tim for joining me. This is fun. Oh, thanks, David. This is great. Yeah, great choice. Well, for Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. Happy reading, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.